OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months, including ESTRO, UKO and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and IonRT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensys.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 93. My name is Naman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Mary Oladelli, who talked about the charity cancer education she set up, along with equality, diversity and inclusion. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest, Lindsay Allen, who will be discussing her career along with cancer and nutrition. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me today. Oh, it's nice to have you on, especially after you said you were a super fan earlier. It's nice to have you. <laughs> so would you mind starting by telling us a bit about your current role and how you got there, please? I am a Macmillan Oncology Dietitian at the Royal Surrey Hospital. And um, I have been qualified since I was 40. I came late to the profession, having failed every single science exam at school and um, did a languages degree because I grew up in South America and didn't really take much of an interest at school. So it's quite a surprise to me that I am where I am today. Um, I left university having got a French and Spanish degree, dabbled in marketing and publishing and ended up after having my children a little bit bored and decided, right, well, I want to do something else. And I knew that I wanted to work in a hospital that was what I knew. And I explored the speech and language area, decided that actually, no, that wasn't for me. And actually, now that I'm qualified, I'm really pleased that I didn't go down that route. I love my speech and language colleagues, but it's not for me. And decided on dietetics. So um, I went back to college, I did my A-levels, I had a one year old and a five year old at the time. 
and then proceeded to do my full-time degree with very, very small children. Uh, my ex-husband was super understanding and supported me through that. And I then got a job locally at the Royal Surrey in Guildford, and I've never really moved from there. Um, I started off as a band five, did a couple of years, was determined that I would do paediatrics, and then got an opportunity to have a job in oncology. And I took it because I was ready to move into a band six role, never for a million years imagining that this would be where I would end up. And it took three weeks. And three weeks later, I said to my boss at the time, I will never do anything else. Oncology patients are something else. And working within the MDT, I don't know, there was, there was something about it. So I did my band six and then subsequently um, became a band seven and team lead and currently I've been doing that now for 12 years and like I say I will retire doing it um, and I am very much a clinical dietitian at heart um, I absolutely love my patients but at the same time I also love doing lots of other things um, as well within my job so my role is oncology team lead and and oncology dietitian I look after patients with all sorts of diagnoses. We've, we're really lucky in Guildford that we have a 14-strong oncology dietetic team. Now, we've got head and neck dietitians and um, OG dietitians, esophagogastric dietitians, and, and my team look after everybody else. And it's quite unusual, I think, um, uh, to have such a big general oncology team because uh, uh, in, the, in a lot of places in the UK, um, for example, lung cancer patients don't necessarily get access to a dietitian. Um, so so we, we look after all of these people. I think a thousand patients have gone through our clinics in the last 15 months or so. And um, I'm really lucky to have about six dietitians within my team. So that's that's really how I got here probably luck more than good judgment I don't know <laughs> can I take you back where in South America yes um in Rio Rio Brazil my father was born in Brazil and so um he was sent he was posted there he was English but he was posted there when I was two years old and I um had my childhood on the beaches of um of Rio which I, I I can't tell you. It, it was wonderful. And I could wish that my children could have had a little bit of that. Um, but all I knew was languages, which is why I, I, re I, read a, I read a book through my chemistry lessons at school. So I still have to pinch myself that I am actually now working as a scientist, um, doing scientific research as well for part of my job. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> I can't quite believe it, actually, still. <laughs> It sounds really inspiring, Lindsay, and you sound really passionate about your role. You said that you kind of, you love the fact that you work with oncology patients. What is it that you do kind of day to day? What is it that oncology patients kind of inspire you to kind of dedicate your time and career to those, those patients? It's funny you should ask me that today because I've actually been at the University of Surrey today lecturing the second year dietetic students and I was trying to give them a feel. I was also trying to sell them the job. So if there's any dietetic students out there, it's a great job. Um, uh, what is it? I, I think you can really make a difference. Um, you, can, you can really make a difference and you're working with people who also want to make a difference for themselves. And I think both of you will probably appreciate this, that, that you know, there's, 
there's a need, I think, for all of us AHPs to help people make the best of quite a bad situation. I have never laughed so much in a job before. Um, patients say the funniest things. And, and also, I think, I think what I realised when I started working with people who have a diagnosis of cancer is that they are just normal people who happen to have been dealt a bad hand. And as dietitians in my day-to-day -day role, um, I can see all manner of people, most of whom are struggling a little bit, with their, with their diet, with their appetite, with symptoms and side effects. And so what we could, what, what as, and I think our role has changed quite considerably over, over the years. We've become a lot more holistic. When I started this, um, it was very much about nutrition support and working on the diet and what people are eating and how we can help them eat a bit more, stop losing weight, et cetera, et cetera. I think the landscape of cancer has changed. Um, people are much more complex now. Um, not only do they come with pre-existing conditions like celiac disease or diabetes or ulcerative colitis, um, but their cancer has become more complicated. So people are living longer, so they're developing um, uh, different different things as time goes on, their symptoms might be worse. So as dietitians, we're working very closely with the rest of the MDT too perhaps they manage uh, malabsorption from pancreatic cancer or um, bowel, uh, my big thing is bowel obstruction. People are becoming more susceptible to bowel obstruction because cancer is spreading more because they're living longer. So what we're doing is working really closely with these patients to help improve their quality of life, but looking at them as individuals. And what we're also doing is, is highlighting symptoms and side effects that they're getting from their cancer, which perhaps before we didn't really focus as much on because that was the domain of the CNS and the doctor, whereas now I think we're all so busy that we're all having a hand in everything. So my day-to-day -day is, is extremely varied, um, and I'm, I see patients probably two or three days a week, but the rest of it is devoted to research. Um, and I love my clinic days. My daughter lives with me at the moment and she's like, oh, it's Tuesday, it's your clinic day. You love your clinic day, don't you? So as a dietitian, Lindsay, mm. is there advice that you would give to patients? And I, don't get me wrong, I understand that obviously your personalised care would be very individual, but is there, is there some advice that you would give to every cancer patient? as a generic piece of dietetic advice? I think the patients that are referred to us, that would be difficult to do because they're more complex. There are a lot of patients that we don't ever get to see. Um, I've seen a lot of patients over the past 10 years, but there are probably 10 times as many that never get near the dietitian. In answer to your question, I think um, the, the biggest bit of advice that I can give anybody is to make sure that you are maintaining your weight, that you're doing some physical activity to maintain your muscle, and that if you have symptoms and side effects that you're asking for help with those, because often something will affect why you might not be eating as well as normal. If you're well, I think the biggest bit of advice to all of those patients that don't come near us because they're tolerating their treatment well and they're doing okay is please just eat a balanced, healthy diet 
that diet that everybody in the country should be following um, to make sure that you've got all of the nutrients to see you through all of your all of your treatment. Um, we've just produced uh, uh, 18 set of 18 videos that are aimed predominantly at patients who don't actually really need to see a dietitian on a one-to-one -one basis and they're available on our website and they are um, they're, they're basic just little bits of advice two to three minutes long and we want I've wanted to do this for about eight years um, but we never had the time we never had the resources and actually in the end we put we put them together ourselves rather like you putting your podcast together yourselves we put it together ourselves but we just needed the resources to, to take the time to do it because we're very very aware that we're dealing with Dr Google and the internet and I often see people who say oh god I don't know what advice to follow and so um, they come to us and, and actually what we've done is produce these little videos that people can watch they've got subtitles we can translate them into different languages so that people can see oh what do i eat if i feel sick what do i eat if i've got taste changes what do i eat if i've got constipation what do i eat if i just don't feel like eating and so those i think are the more generic ones so i don't know whether you can say actually one size fits all with anybody it's a bit like your job how do you navigate patients obviously with dr google finding xyz nutrient from some jungle which is supposedly anti-cancer i mean there's so many different ones there's great guides like trekstock have a really good cancer nutrition guide but then there's all the myths around soya and dairy it's it's, it's a bit of a minefield i think with patients clinically it is and it's a, i think it's a minefield with healthcare professionals as well um because i'm sure that um as therapeutic radiographers you are going to have people coming in and going oh i read this or you know my acupuncturist said this um the way i navigate it and i learned this from one of my supervisors when i was on c placement at university is that you must never take away hope from a patient and the, the reason people are searching for information is A, they may not have access to somebody who's going to give them evidence-based advice, um, but B, that also that it's the only thing that they can control. Um, there is nothing about a cancer diagnosis and treatment that a patient or their partner or their family can control, but diet is something that they can potentially actually take charge of and everybody's got an opinion. So if I've got somebody in clinic sitting in front of me saying, well, look, I've read this on the Internet and I'm taking this, that and the other out of my diet because this one is going to either feed my cancer or this one. I've read this website and this one says I shouldn't shouldn't be having it. I will then explore why they've searched and explore why the reasons behind it, because sometimes it could be that somebody said it or that they're scared or anxious Um and then having done that, I will explain generally the lack of evidence around it. We will look at things that are not harmful because often some, some things might, might be not something that we would recommend. For example, if someone's got a colorectal tumour sitting in their gut, then somebody going for a very high fibre diet, that's actually not really very sound and could actually make the symptoms worse. So we'd eradicate, take out all of the things that, that might cause issues and then look at what else we're left with. And I think so long as it's not harmful, we make sure that 
the diet remains balanced and that they're getting their nutrients. So, for example, the dairy. If somebody takes dairy out of their diet, we would make sure that they're still getting their calcium from other sources. But it is not our place to take away hope. And if it's if somebody wants to remove dairy from their diet because they're not comfortable taking it, or if somebody wants to says to me, look, I can't take any any foods with sugar in them, we would then talk about compromising and maybe removing refined sugar, but leaving the carbohydrates in, which also break down to sugars. And it's, I think, just explaining the reasons why there's no evidence and being honest with patients, but then supporting them as much as you possibly can, because we can only give that advice. They don't need to take that advice, but it is massively challenging, massively challenging. So, Lindsay, you mentioned you have kind of two aspects of your role, one of them being research. Can you tell us what you're researching at the moment? Um, I can. I have just finished a trial um, called Bounced, which is um, basically a feasibility study looking at a diet that I have put together over the past six years or so for patients who can eat but have subacute bowel obstruction. So symptoms from subacute bowel obstruction. And I um, I have to say, I never thought that I would be doing research, but I got into it by mistake um, a few years ago because research fellow in our... Um, and in fact, I had a meeting with him this morning. Um, um, uh, he persuaded us that he wanted to do this trial with lung cancer patients. And my colleague Adele Hug, who now works in um, Australia, um, got roped in. And we did this trial with with lung cancer patients. And I'd never really done any clinical research before. And Adele then left to have a baby. Ian then left to move to Edinburgh. And I was left running the study. Anyway, so then subsequent to that, I started developing this diet for bowel obstruction because there is no evidence to support any dietary change for people who might have um, a risk of obstruction in their gut, either be it from a colorectal cancer or bowel cancer or peritoneal disease and we are seeing it more and more and more and more um, with our ovarian cancer patients and our bowel cancer patients and you will see that in your in your work um, because often if somebody presents late with a bowel cancer they may not be able to proceed to surgery and they have to have radiotherapy first to shrink the tumor or chemotherapy and the first question they say is, what do I eat? Because if I eat certain things, I'm in pain or they feel bloated or nauseous. So um, a patient of mine, in fact, asked me to produce one diet because I had given her a liquid diet sheet and a soft diet sheet and a low fiber diet sheet. And she was just completely confused. So I created this four step diet. But of course, you know, we used it. And then I thought, well, actually, we need to we need we need to evidence this. So I completed the feasibility at the beginning of November and we just had 30 patients bowel and ovarian and the results are, I'm, I'm writing them up for publication but they are showing that um, not only do symptoms reduce um, but that it could potentially reduce hospital admissions because we compared hospital admissions before and after so um, and people were able to pretty much keep their nutritional status okay, even though we'd taken out fibre, we'd taken I take out bread products as well. And the idea of the diet is that you go either from liquids to 
puree or soft foods, depending on the degree of risk of obstruction. And so I'm just writing that up and I'm um, going to apply for a bigger grant, a research for patient benefit grant to do a bigger study across different sites. We were hoping to open somewhere else, but COVID hit and um, unfortunately we weren't able to use another hospital site but, but but I plan to do a bigger study so that we can move forward and start looking and take it and taking it on to the next phase. Can I ask what just for anyone listening what is a bowel obstruction and are there any factors that can cause it or you know make people be more susceptible to a bowel obstruction? So so an obstruction is a blockage um, and it is it can happen if you've got a tumour in your bowel that's sitting on the edge of your bowel and it can just narrow the space in the intestines. Now sometimes that completely closes and it can lead to quite a lot of pain and vomiting and often patients will end up in hospital um, and then go to emergency surgery and and, and that can happen quite a bit. Um, But sometimes it's you just start to have problems opening your bowels Um, That's something I will say. I never imagined in a million years I would talk about bowels quite as much as I do as a dietitian, especially now that I've taken an interest in in bowel blockages. Um, I almost talk more about poo and and things that I never, ever thought that I would do before. Um, So so it can happen from from a tumour, a primary tumour in the bowel, but it can also... Um, anything that sits on the edge of the bowel can can potentially have risk of a blockage. Now, sometimes people will have surgery and they will have scarring in their bowel um, from uh, a bowel resection. Maybe they've had a colon tumour taken out and they've got a bit of scarring there. Now, people scar differently and sometimes that scarring can kind of narrow the intestine slightly. And so far, what happens is if people start to get pain, they end up at A&E. And what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do is actually develop eventually some guidelines whereby patients who go in for surgery, who have surgery, are then told, right, well, look, if this were to happen, because the admission rates of people with adhesion scarring that come back into hospital are huge. If they're told at the time, look, if you start to get these symptoms, then this is what you must do with reducing, you know, changing your diet that maybe, maybe people will be able to take control of that and actually say, okay, fine, look, I've got quite a bit of pain in here, maybe, and things aren't going through quite so well. And patients tend to know, actually, let me spend a couple of days taking liquids and then gradually reintroducing foods, and then I can go back to my normal diet. Um, So it's it's really a bowel blockage is something that narrows the gut. I deal with people with cancer only. Occasionally my cancer patients, I have to talk to them about the scarring, but mostly it's it's from a cancer that is either a primary cancer or a cancer that's spread that's kind of peritoneal disease. We call peritoneal disease, it's a, it, it, it's a bit like sand that's along the bowel and it can be on one pinch point or it can be on several that can actually cause some really quite horrible symptoms, um, hopefully to none of your listeners. Um, but it's but it's something that I think usually patients are aware of when their oncologist is talking about their diagnosis and 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 where they're at in their cancer journey, um, and it is fascinating and it is I'm so determined that 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 I'm going to get something that is standardised um, with a lot of my other colleagues, a lot of other people in the country are now using using the the formula that we've got the the four step bowel um, diet I suppose. 
UKIA conference is back June 2023 in Liverpool for three days and is fully refreshed to respond to feedback from delegates to reflect the world we're living in today. Prices are lower than ever and start at £75 to access the full Congress and all content. They've changed the programme to focus on specialists for the generalist and top tips content rather than highly specialised topics from previous Congresses. There are more sessions on service optimisation, education and workforce. Something that we love is research and it's at the heart of the programme. There's more proffered papers, sessions to present your work, expert sessions on refining research proposals and power pitches and a dedicated research hub. If all of that isn't enough, there are themed hubs in the exhibition on service delivery, clinical case studies and innovation in action, along with more hands-on and technical workshops. Industry partners have added valuable education content on their stands too. You can also check out CPD outside of the programme in case of the day activities and view posters. There are streams aimed specifically at masterclasses for trainees, making UKIO the place to come for value for money exam prep, along with sessions throughout the programme aimed at students. The programme is available to view at www.ukio.org.uk, where you can also register, and there are more than 100 plus sessions to choose from. Make sure you use the code RADCHAT25 on the booking page. And don't forget to come and check us out in our RADCHAT pod box. See you on the 5th to the 7th of June 2023 at ACC in Liverpool. So Lindsay, in oncology there's lots of talk at the moment around genomics. Do you think genomics will play a part within dietetics in years to come? Oh gosh, it's so funny you should ask me that question because actually cancer research, there was a there was a piece on cancer research that a patient showed me. I hadn't seen it and she showed me and I only read it at the weekend. And the answer is absolutely yes, I think so. I suspect I'm too old to even, I, I think I would be long gone before this, this gets to that Definitely point. Definitely not, oh, I don't know. Definitely I don't know. not. I am going to want to retire from the NHS at some point um, because I think we're seeing much more targeted treatments um, for cancer and what that what we're beginning to see and I think the, the piece that I read is that there there are some scientists who are who are doing some trials looking at um, removing and certain amino acids so down to particulates of proteins that are delaying tumor growth but that a dietitian needs to be involved because obviously um, what we know is that we need a lot of protein. If you've got a cancer diagnosis, the, important, the importance of protein is, is second to none. And, and protein needs of cancer patients tend to be slightly higher than the general population. And so if you're taking out proteins, you need to make sure that you've got enough of the, the rest of the constituent parts. So we, I think we're going to look at genes. We're going to individualize cancer treatments much, much more. And I think diet is going to play a role alongside therapeutic um treatments i think we've got a way to go and it might be that maybe diet isn't a factor but they're already beginning to look into um, uh, metabolics they call it so they're tiny parts of of foods that you can't even isolate if you look at your dinner you can't you can't isolate it um and i think that yes we are definitely going to go that way and even if it's just to be part of research we need to prove it or not but I think we're a way off yet. Just going back to obviously the balanced diet, I'm sure mm. oh, anyone listening, everyone's version of a balanced diet will be different, especially in hospital. Um, and I suppose my question is through, obviously you do some lecturing 
how much has education changed with more diversity and people being vegans or come from different cultural backgrounds? Oh gosh, um, quite a bit. I mean, we're, when we when we train as dietitians, we obviously look at all different different diets. Um, I've obviously trained and worked in Surrey, so the diversity, the cultural diversity of where I work is 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 not the same as it would be in London or or um, Bradford or, or other places in the country. Um, the vegan issue has has yes massively changed, but also. Um, I think the fact that the UK is is massively multicultural and so we are constantly having to to tailor what we do. I mean my bowel obstruction diet for example, um somebody said it's very surrey. And so I'm constantly trying to get more more into it. Um um I think I think the biggest change has been the introduction of all of the vegan foods and it's whether or not somebody chooses to be vegan because they um, don't like meat or because of it's a because it's a cultural thing or because even it's um it, it you know it's a, it's a choice and that has changed the way we look at how we um write our information leaflets so i do i write a lot of information leaflets it's one of my favorite pastimes other dietitians um think me very strange but I love writing things like that I am uh, just odd I love I love everything that I do actually um, <laughs> um, uh, and so we're having to put in there all of the vegan options but making sure that that they're all still very balanced so protein for example is is a case in point you know people we always used to think well meat fish and eggs um, but actually now we're looking much more about the plant plant based um, products um, and uh, and making sure that those are all included because I do have a challenge with that when I do my low fiber diets because most of the plant plant most of the plant based products are um are very high in fiber so it, it is challenging it is definitely challenging Lindsay Numan touched on it about the balanced diet. And it is true, everyone's version is very different. If I ask my son what a balanced diet is, goodness knows what he'd come out with. But from a dietitian's perspective, what is a balanced diet for everyone listening? Because actually, I think the reason I ask this is because us as healthcare professionals, I think sometimes we feel hypocritical to advise patients about diet because do we really know what a balanced diet is ourselves? And if we know it, do we still follow it? Okay, so to answer your question, a balanced diet is essentially we're aiming for two thirds of our diet um, to be plant based. It's about five portions of fruit and veg and actually probably about a fifth of the diet to be fruit and vegetables. You've then got your carbohydrates, which are should be starchy carbohydrates. So by starchy carbohydrates, I'm talking about um, um, whole grains. So um, rice, pasta, whole grain, rice, pasta, um, grains, lots of those lovely grains that are, are so so in at the moment and, and so available in supermarkets now, cereals, those kind of things. And I think carbohydrates get a hugely bad press because there's a lot 
um, about, oh, no, I shouldn't be eating carbs, especially if I want to lose weight. But they're a great source of vitamin B. They're a great source of fiber and um, and should be part of a diet. They are our fuel. You can't start a car without petrol. So you can't eat, you know, you need you need those carbohydrates to get going. We just all eat a little bit too much of them. Um, and then there's the protein aspect of it. And this is where it differ the general population and the cancer population slightly different because the cancer population and also um, elderly patients and patients who are in hospital, generally their protein needs are higher. But we do need a good two to three portions of protein. And a portion usually is about the size of, of, of your hand. That's what I tend to go with um, because we start talking grams and you lose people because... I, I can't even I can't tell what a gram is compared to actually a handful. And the idea is to have protein two to three times a day. And that can be dairy products or or, um, or, or meat, fish and all your pulses and chickpeas. Um, but you, you're and this is where we struggle because the vegan products, the vegan milks don't contain protein. So almond milk sounds like it has protein because nuts have protein in them but almond milk is just the watery bit of the almond and it doesn't contain much protein um and then moving on so you've got your protein bit and then you, your dairy foods so um um you need your dairy foods for calcium because as we get older we start to to lose bone density and it's important to have calcium in the diet for that um as well as other other things and 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 then some the vegetable oils so cooking with vegetable oils rather than fats um, from animals. Now, previously, we used to have something called the. Oh, it's gone. Let's start that again. Previously, we had um, uh, the eat well plate, which had a knife and fork next to it. And the the sugary foods and the high fat foods were in the plate as part of the balanced diet. Now we've got the Eat Well Guide, which the sugary foods and all of the nice nice bits that you have in your clinic rooms and we have in our dietetics office, the chocolates and the cakes and those kind of things, not always, but sometimes, um, are left outside and they're for high days and holidays. And so when you look at a balanced diet, that isn't part of a balanced diet, but you are allowed a little bit because we are all human. And I just want to touch on what you said, Joe, about the fact that, you know, who are we to give advice? Because actually what we're doing isn't necessarily that balance. I'm a firm believer that any healthcare professional out there should be able to give some first line advice to patients. Because if you've got somebody, say, lying on your bed and they said, well, what do you think about this? Isn't it great to be able to give them some first line advice on something? And that's why we're trying to actually provide information and and re reputable sources of information so that other healthcare professionals can provide that advice. Now, you may walk back into the office and eat a chocolate, but that's OK. You can still give the advice to the patients because actually, if we're all saying the same thing, then isn't that a good thing? And also then we are left to look after the much more complex people. Um, so I'm, I'm a firm believer that we should all be helping patients and giving that advice. Definitely. I often tell patients, if you're really struggling to eat, get something you like, like cake. Or um, one of my favourite pastimes at the moment is sinking a family-sized pack of mini eggs. 
because it's around Easter. I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm doing a lot of exercise. So I'm training for an Ironman. I'm allowed to eat a bag of mini eggs. I get judged a lot. <laughs> I hope it's not one of those uh, one kilogram bags that Tesco's have just released. Yeah. <laughs> oh, listen, I'm partial to a mini egg or two. Don't you worry. Um, don't you worry about that. I, I think I think our middle name as dietitians is moderation. And if you're training for an Ironman. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, what's the advice around alcohol? Because I just know from kind of some of the work that I'm involved in around prehabilitation and rehabilitation, um, you know, there is research recently that says that actually no alcohol should should be consumed. Um, but obviously, societally, it's part of some people's lifestyle whereas obviously there are other patients then then use it especially during a cancer diagnosis as that kind of crutch almost as a way to relax how can we help and support patients and patients support themselves when it comes to alcohol i think what i find is most patients don't fancy it during treatment um because of taste changes and and various other things however um, the advice keeps changing. Um, I think it's one of those things. It's a bit like alcohol and pregnancy. You know, every decade, it's a different bit of advice, um, certainly. Um, I think I think generally the advice is try to avoid it altogether. And certainly during treatment, because it's empty, uh, from our perspective, it's empty calories. It's completely empty calories. You don't get any nutritional value to it. And we're trying to get people through treatment um, as well as possible however it's a bit like the alternative diets and the the dietary restrictions you know it's 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 all very well us coming in and going well actually you know the advice is you've got to stop drinking alcohol but what you don't want to do is alienate your patients and and also I think sometimes they need to make that choice and I think we can only give the advice and say look you're better off actually having a chocolate milkshake because you're going to get some nutritional value from that. And I did speak to a chap last week who who was drinking quite a bit. And, and it, it, it's also not assuming that they realise that actually, oh, that would be better for me. He was, oh, OK, no, I'm quite happy to have a chocolate milkshake instead of my wine. Um, so they surprise you at every turn, patients, in a wonderful, wonderful way. Um, and I think... As far as alcohol is concerned, better le left avoided. But if somebody wants to have some, then please try and do it in moderation. Um, that that would be what, what I would advise. So no pack of family size one kilogram mini eggs then. Okay. I have a question around kind of average daily calories. Obviously, we know roughly what it should be for a man or a woman and that's always set in stone but actually things and factors will vary obviously you've touched on the protein requirement going up for cancer patients for example but there's also patients who are preparing for treatment or going through rehab after treatment how do you navigate the varying color and obviously then there's age and multimorbidities um, obviously I know this is your role but it should I just thought it'd be quite interesting for our listeners and um I have a confession. I don't actually always calculate nutritional requirements um, for my patients because I don't tube feed them. And I personally think that I, I have had patients who, who have wanted to calorie count and who've wanted exactly to know how many calories they need every day. 
it is very, very difficult to do in the cancer setting because depending on the diagnosis of the person, it will affect their basic metabolic rate. And we know in the literature that the patients like lung and pancreatic cancer patients, their basic metabolic rate can increase by up to 50% just from the cancer diagnosis. We also know that um, somebody having head and neck radiotherapy, is they're very prone to losing weight and their stress factor, because it's quite, it, it is probably one of the most brutal treatments that patients can have, their calorie requirements are going to increase quite significantly. And I know that my head and neck colleagues put on about 35% stress factor on top of basic requirements. But there's no evidence behind any of the, the equations that we use in cancer, or very little evidence. And so it's very difficult to say, right, well, I'm going to work this out for you. There's no one size fits all. So the way I work it is... I don't want to put too much stress on people because a lot of people then go, oh my God, I wasn't getting my 2,000 calories today. And then they stress about it. They've got enough to worry about as it is. I tend to take a history, find out what they're eating and drinking. And then if they're losing weight, I'll then explore with them options for increasing the amount that they're doing. Because generally, if weight is stable, they're getting enough. But if weight is dropping, then they need to add more in. Um, and I and I think that is a less stressful way of going about it because every single patient is is different because every single treatment's different, every single cancer behaves differently, even if they've got the same diagnosis. Um, it is it it is a minefield, and I don't think we'll ever have an answer to it. Uh, and Lindsay, isn't there issues around things like sarcopenic obesity where you kind of automatically look at someone who's maybe overweight? not necessarily taking into consideration their body mass. Absolutely. And um, I, I did say to my students today, you know, um, it, it's not necessarily the body mass index that you need to look at. It's the percentage weight loss, because somebody may well be still, if you look at the, the charts and body mass index charts, which is your weight to height ratio, um, to me are a little bit out of date because because they're based on healthy humans and we're using it in a population that is going through cancer treatment. You're looking at your percentage weight loss. And if somebody has lost a lot of weight very quickly, they will have lost muscle. And I do meet a lot of people who say to me, God, getting to the top of the stairs is such hard work. And all those little things that you take for granted, you know, walking to the local shop or, or, I don't know, picking up the washing and carrying it to the washing line, they start to struggle with. And it's because the muscle has gone and, you know, oh God, I can't sit still for very long because my bottom's really sore because that's where they lose the, the, the weight. Um, they lose the muscle. And of course, as a result, uh, it, it, I think as healthcare professionals, we're still not all very good at... Um, navigating that area because you will see somebody who is um, clinically overweight and think oh well they can't need a dietitian because they're clinically overweight but actually they may well have lost three stone and and I think gone are the days when you walk through the waiting area and you've got very very thin wasting away patients actually most people look quite quite healthy weights 
but actually they may well have lost a heck of a lot of weight before then. Um, and that's where, even, you know, we don't have physiotherapists in our um, oncology centre for outpatients. Um, I wish that we could do more with that. But as part of my practice, I'm always encouraging people to get up and about. And I see that as part and parcel of the overall dietetic um, consultation is making sure that they are actually out and about and doing things if they possibly can. It just emphasises a lot, doesn't it, that multidisciplinary team working. And if, if you don't have other AHPs available or nurses or medics available, then it is about what information can we learn to better support our patients? Completely. Maybe slightly outside our scope of practice, but supporting them holistically. And I think the important thing is that we do do that and that we and that we signpost and that we are aware of our limitations and that we we know actually this is as far as I can go with this. I need to refer you on to somebody else. So Lindsay, what's next for you? So you're kind of doing your research. Is Have you got another career move in you? Have you got another research project? Or another language? <laughs> oh, definitely Italian. But that I'm saving for retirement. <laughs> I'm definitely saving that for retirement. Um, I think I've got a lot more research in me, um, but I don't think I will ever be able to lose the clinical. Um, I did toy with the idea of, an a, of a PhD, but came to the conclusion that I didn't really want to walk away from my job because I would have to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it part-time. I'd have to do it full-time. And, I, and I, I'm a really strong advocate of doing research within a clinical role I think we should all be doing more and I get my band I've got a band five in my team and everybody is involved if there's a research project everybody's involved in a little bit so that I can try and inspire other people so I think I think the future for me is is very much um, a mix of clinical and research Uh, I don't think I've got a career move in me Um, I think I'm where I'm going to be I don't want to go into management um, because there are people that are far better at it than than I would be. I'm I'm a team lead, and that's that's as 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 far as I'll go. Um, I trained late, so I and I've got two degrees, very different degrees. So I don't feel the urge to do a master's and become an ACP. Uh, I'm probably ticking all the boxes for an ACP already, but I I don't feel the need to to formalise that. Um, I just I just want to keep doing what I'm doing actually and just do more of it very inspiring Lindsay as you know if you've been as you've been listening to our podcast we always end with some top tips do you have some more top tips to give to our listeners Uh, I do Um, I did have a think about this because I knew you were going to ask me this question (laughs) and um, I think for the patients listening be careful of Dr. Google. I think that would be my biggest top tip. Go to reputable sources. Um, and if you are struggling, I think the biggest thing I would say to anybody out there, please ask for help because there should be help available if um, the information on the reputable sources isn't enough for you. Um, I think for healthcare professionals um, working in cancer who aren't dietitians that might be listening to this, don't be afraid to offer first-line diet advice. Please help us because we can't see everybody. And if you aren't sure, check in with your dietetics department because I can guarantee they will be happy to help you. Um, I think also um, to any aspiring healthcare professionals, 
don't worry that you might have missed the boat because I was 40 when I qualified and I was convinced I was too old. But somebody said to me at 40, you will work longer than you've already worked. And I thought, OK, fine. And the only other thing... That that sounds slightly depressing, <laughs> Well, well, I know. Well, do you know what? It, it is and it's not, because I thought, oh, God, have I really only worked that little bit, you know, by the time you get to 40? <laughs> um, but don't be afraid to embark on something, because we need you. We need you. I don't know where everyone's gone, but there is there is um, a big um, lack of healthcare professionals coming through and, and recruitment is, is uh, horrendous at the minute. So we do need people. And and also, I would just encourage anybody to be curious, to be curious about things and to look at your service and do some service evaluation. And don't be afraid to write it up for publication, because what you are doing might become a research project. And I tell you, it is so rewarding when you get to the results and you get to the end of it. Um, and don't be afraid to do research. And if you're not sure where to start, ask somebody who, who is doing it, because anybody in research will want to help anybody who's interested. Thank you so much, Lindsay. And I think a really nice way to end talking about good mentorship and reaching out. Uh, that's how I got into research. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for everyone for listening to Rad Chat. Uh, your hosts today have been Naman Jill Canderson and Joe McNamara. For utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, along with all the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Samantha Bostock. She will be discussing her role as a therapeutic radiographer and her passion around supporting patients with late effects. Thank you for listening and take care. Join us, Rad Chat, at Oncology Professional Care, an award-winning event for the whole oncology community, returning to the Excel Centre in London on 23rd to 24th May 2023, a multidisciplinary and multi-professional event which breaks people out of their professional silos by delivering free CPD certified education for all healthcare professionals working in oncology. Joe and I are excited to have steered and influenced the programme as part of the advisory board with support from key organisations such as NHS England, Macmillan Cancer Support, Bopper and more. There are over 130 plus sessions of carefully curated content focused on the whole patient pathway across five dedicated theatres. Keynote speakers, living with and beyond cancer, early diagnosis and screening, clinical excellence in surgery and therapeutics and advanced cancer treatments. There are many reasons to attend, such as discovering cutting edge developments in cancer treatment, understanding how genomics and personalised medicine can become part of the bigger treatment options, make sense of an evolving policy landscape direct from the National Cancer Team at NHS England with keynote address from Dame Callie Palmer. Gain insight into what's happening in early diagnosis and screening to improve early detection of cancers with sessions on fit tests, HPV vaccination and targeted lung health checks. There are some specific focused clinical sessions for 2023 on head and neck cancers, blood cancers, breast cancer and bowel cancer. One of our favourite aspects from RadChat is that you'll be able to hear inspiring patient stories along with their real life experiences of living with and beyond cancer. If that isn't enough, you can join the hands-on hub and enjoy interactive, practical sessions to bolster your technical skills, as well as visiting the pod box with us here at RadChat. Visit the event website to find out more, and we look forward to seeing you on the 23rd, 24th of May, 2023 at London Excel Centre.